Hey fellow true crime lovers, my name is Patrick and I am the host of Not Adding Up. Not Adding Up is a podcast that features cases, as the name implies, don't add it up. This can be disappearances, strange deaths, wrongful convictions, unsolved crimes, and other unexplained phenomena. Each week I walk a friend or family member through a case in which they are unfamiliar. I do this to allow them to ask questions I may not have thought of while researching, or that you may have as you listen. The cases I cover range from ones that are well known, to some you may not have heard before. Since the cases I cover don't add up, I always encourage my listeners to form their own theories on what they believe happened, and never present my opinion as fact. Frequently my co-host has a very different theory than my own, which proves the cases I cover are ones that just don't make sense and need to be discussed further. So if you are a true crime lover and find yourself constantly forming your own theories when listening to podcasts, Not Adding Up is perfect for you. Tune in each Friday for new episodes, available on all major streaming platforms. Hello, listeners. Thank you for coming back today. This is episode... 56. 56 at the True Crime B&B. Mm-hmm. And today starts our second year of podcasting. Yay! Yay! We also decided to switcheroo the roles again. So you are going to bring us in with the new year. I am. And along with that, we were talking about my husky voice today. I am not sick. I don't know why my voice sounds like this. It just does. So whatever. She's seducing you. I'm, I'm alive! Yeah, so far. <laughs> I guess we'll see. If I do that again, I will be, right? Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, I am taking us to a little archipelago off the coast of West Africa. What is that word you just said? Archipelago. What is that? An archipelago is like a grouping of islands. And I'm not sure if they have to be volcanic islands, but this one is volcanic islands. Okay. That's cool. So Cabo Verde, and we actually have some listeners in Cabo Verde. Surprisingly enough, they found us there. Is sometimes also called Cape Verde, or on the islands they call it Cap Verde. Okay. It's an archipelago that's several hundred kilometers off the coast of Senegal on West Africa. The total population of the archipelago is now nearly 600,000 people, up from just over 500,000 back in 2007. And I'm saying 2007 because that's when our story took place. Okay. Sol, or Sol, is the third smallest of the ten volcanic islands and has only about 3.5% of the population. So this whole island of Sol is 22 miles long, 7 miles wide, and now it has about 40,000 people. But back in 2007, when our story took place, the population of this entire island was less than 15,000 people. So it's a very tiny little island and it had very few people living on it. This archipelago has become a tropical getaway for people of many nations, and annually there's an influx of hundreds just of young Italian tourists who come there on holiday. It's by word of mouth, you know, over the years, people started coming, and then they were telling their friends, and now there are hundreds of young Italian tourists who come there pretty much every single year. Well, that makes sense, because they're not that far off from each other. Just have to hop across the continent. It's kind of like the equivalent to living in Ohio and then going to Florida for Mm -hmm. vacation. The beaches are wide and white, and the ocean around the islands is pristine and unpolluted. The islands are in the perfect location also for ideal windsurfing waves, and that's part of the draw. The latter was the draw for a beautiful young Italian woman named Dahlia Sayani. Dahlia, 33 years old, 
had been a junior windsurfing champion at the age of 13. So when she had discovered the perfect shape and power of the Sol Island waves, she was hooked. She made almost a pilgrimage from her home in Ravenna, Italy, to Sol over the winter holidays every single year. She loved the island so much that she had bought a small house in the tiny capital city of Santa Maria at the south end of the island. Only 2,000 people inhabited this little capital city of Santa Maria in 2007. A little teeny-weeny town. It's literally just a beachside village, essentially. More or less, yes. Okay. During Dahlia's series of annual holidays, over the years, she had become friends with another Italian woman, a travel agent named Giorgia Busato, who was equally in love with Saul, and at the age of 28, she had also purchased a little house in Santa Maria. Giorgio was from the Marzana, Verona area in Italy. Both women wished they could just live on Saul forever. Over the years, the two women planned their holidays to coincide and to meet up whenever they were going to be on the island, and winter of 2007 was no exception. But this year, there was a third in their party. Dahlia was accompanied by a young woman named Agnese Pachi. Agnese, from Ravenna, like Dahlia was, was still 17 years old. She was on her first holiday trip without her parents, And rather than go skiing like most of her friends, Agnese was more interested in learning windsurfing. So her parents gave her the trip as an early 18th birthday present, and she went along with Dahlia to spend her holiday on the beach on Sol, and she was super excited to be in this blissful little paradise. Yeah, that's a wicked cool birthday present. During some of her previous holidays on Sol, Dahlia had indulged in a little romantic fling with a local tour guide by the name of Sandro Santos Rosario. Sandro was in his early 20s, was far more enamored of Dahlia than she was of him. He was much younger, they didn't share a lot of interests, and when she returned to the island in 2007, she did not intend to continue this fling with Sandro anymore. Mm -hmm. In fact, she had a new boyfriend and had arranged for her new boyfriend to travel to the island to spend his holiday with her there. This boyfriend was also a windsurfer, originally from Cabo Verde, but now lived in Brazil, and he was looking forward to the first World Windsurfing Championships that were going to be held in the islands, and that was supposed to take place the following week. The island, being the tiny and tight-knit community that it was, made it very hard to keep anything secret. And she wasn't trying to keep it secret, but somehow Sandro had heard through the grapevine that Dahlia's boyfriend would be arriving in a few days. Well, he started inundating Dolly with calls and requests. He wanted to get together. She turned him down. He persisted. He insisted. He bugged her about it every single day. Sandra was very invested in the idea that this fling should continue, but Dahlia didn't want this. And when Sandro continued hounding her about getting together, she agreed to have dinner with him, but she would be bringing her two female friends with her. Dahlia was planning to officially put an end to the past romance and tell Sandro that she was not interested in any further contact with him, and she thought her two friends would ease the anticipated tension that was going to come with his conversation. It was agreed that the three women would meet up with Sandro on Thursday, February 7th, 2007 at 8 p.m. in the center of town, and then Sandro was going to drive them all to his parents' home in Espargos near the airport on the west side of the island where the plan was to have their dinner. But when Sandro showed up in a car he had borrowed, he had another local man with him. So all five of them climbed into the car, he and his male friend in the front seat, and then Dahlia, Georgia, and Agnese in the back seat. 
As they drove, Sandra explained to Dahlia that he needed to make a detour to take his friend home. He said he was going to head over to Palmyra, but after a few minutes, he instead veered off down a dirt road that leads to one of the oases on the island, where there is a grove of palm trees. This was in the opposite direction of Palmyra, where he had said he was heading, and the women knew it. They instantly became worried about going in the wrong direction toward an isolated place, and they demanded to know what was going on. But by this time, Sandro had arrived where he was heading and abruptly slammed on the brakes and stopped the car. He then turned towards the three in the back seat and sprayed pepper spray into all of their faces. Mm -hmm. While the women were still blind and in pain from the pepper spray, the second man got out of the car, opened up the back door, and dragged Dahlia out of the vehicle. He kept dragging her across a sand dune towards the grove, which was several yards away from the car. Sandro also had gotten out of the car, opened the other back door, and dragged Georgia out as well. He viciously threatened Agnese not to get out of the car. She was still nearly blind, but she could hear violence. Dahlia and Georgia were both screaming and crying and then moaning. She also heard Dahlia trying to negotiate with Sandro, offering him money if he would let them go. The violence continued, although Agnese wasn't really sure what the men were doing to her friends. She could hear them moaning as they were being raped and attacked on the ground outside of the car. She helplessly peeked out through the windows to try to grasp what was happening, but after seeing Dahlia's and George's pain and suffering, she said she just couldn't watch. Agnese said, quote, I saw what they did, I heard their cries, then I couldn't take any more. I closed my eyes and lay down on the back seat. I was paralyzed with fear. And of course she was. She was 17 years old. She yeah. had no idea what was going on. Yeah. I can't imagine. Oof. She did have her phone, and she tried to dial the phone to get help, but she was shaking. She couldn't see well enough still. Her eyes were still blurry from the pepper spray. Mm -hmm. Before she could get through to anyone on the phone, Sandro came back to the car, confiscated her phone, and smashed it. She didn't know what was happening with her friends now, but Sandro got back in the car and drove away with her in the back seat. Sandro didn't drive very far, and when he stopped, Agnese didn't know what was about to happen. She probably thinks he's about to do the same to her. Mm -hmm. He opened the back door again, grabbed Agnese, and dragged her out of the car. He picked up a rock from the ground and bashed her in the head with it. He hit her again with the rock. She was knocked out cold, and Sandro left her for dead. When Agnese finally regained consciousness, she managed to stand. It was dark. She managed to start walking, although she had no idea where she was or how to get back to town. It's her first time on this island. Mm -hmm. She was bloody, terrified. Her head was throbbing. She probably couldn't even think straight because of the pain. And she walked until she ran into the beach. It was night now. There was a full moon, and she was shaking like a leaf. So she didn't think walking was going to help her. She just crouched down at the beach and waited until morning. When the sun started to rise, Agnese finally started to walk again. Eventually, she came across a dirt road, and a taxi driver saw her picked her up, and drove her back to Santa Maria. She needed 18 stitches in her head, and she had skull fractures. She went to the police in Santa Maria. They had never had a murder in Santa Maria, and they really didn't believe Agnese's story. They didn't call her a liar, but they were very skeptical that such a thing could have happened here. Finally, they just sort of brushed her off and said they would go look. But it wasn't the police who actually responded to Agnese's claims. Locals, who were friends with the tourist community and other regular tourists, jumped to action as soon as they heard Agnese's story. They got in cars, they got on motorbikes, and they drove out to the oasis that Agnese had described. There, they found disturbed earth 
that turned out to be a shallow grave. Mm -hmm. Dahlia and Georgia were buried together, both beaten with stones until they were nearly unrecognizable. It was later discovered that Dahlia even had sand in her lungs, so she had not been dead at the time the men had thrown her into the grave. Sandro, who had left Agnese thinking she was dead, had no idea that she had been able to make it back into town at all, let alone to then provide enough information for the locals to figure out who had done this horrible double murder. He got up the next day and went to work, just like nothing happened. Sandro Rosario, along with his murder accomplice, whose name I was not able to find, and a third unnamed man were arrested. The two murderers both confessed. The third man had been arrested because they had called him to help bury the bodies after they finished. <sighs> yeah, so he was aiding and abetting after the fact. Although the women were tourists, they had been loved and respected by the locals here, who said they had always been ideal tourists and guests, and they had always shown love and reverence toward the islands, the culture there, and all the people. They were well known, and they were considered part of the extended family. So on the Monday after their deaths in Santa Maria, the small Saul capital of 2,000 residents, over 1,000 people, dressed in white shirts per the local custom, with the white symbolizing purity, and silently walked together, carrying candles in a solemn memorial procession through town. Half of the residents in a place these people didn't even reside. Mm -hmm. But this murder case was more or less the end of the innocence for Cabo Verde, and particularly Saul. To all who lived here, and to those who wished they could, this was considered a very safe island. Mm -hmm. Murder was virtually unknown on the island of Saul, at least until February 7, 2007. Saul is still brimming with its Creole culture and its amazing music, but now it's also full of developers and investors and tourism and foreign money. As this little island with a long and colorful ancestry continues to develop, it can never go back to the sleepy, peaceful calm that embodied it for the many, many years from the end of its Portuguese occupancy as part of the African slave trade up until its tourism years before modern crime arrived at its door. And I tried, but I was unable to find the sentences that were handed down to the three perpetrators. Mm -hmm. But one thing is almost certain. Had Agnese Pachi not made this trip and survived to tell what happened, it's very likely that this terrible crime against Dalia Sayani and Georgia Busato probably never would have been solved. And in fact, the people there may not have even known anything happened to them. May have thought they just left the island. They are there to do a, not dangerous, sport, but anything that involves the ocean as a hobby has the risk of a riptide or, you know, just going under and not coming back up one day. And how believable would it be? Well, they, they were on the ocean together. Back. and Yeah. Yeah. So it's possible that no one would have ever known that they had really disappeared <laughs> as opposed to drowned or went somewhere else, yeah. left the island. Agnese is the only reason that we know what happened to them. I mean, you probably don't have the answer to this, but I wonder why he took her to a different location if his intent was to leave her for dead, essentially, the same way he did the other two girls. I think that he didn't want to leave a witness, but I think he also didn't want to rape her because she was just a kid. A child, yeah. Not that I want to say good for him. At least he didn't yeah. rape her, but... You know, you don't get to murder people just because they don't want to date you anymore. You don't have that as a choice in life. Bullshit. Yeah. Well, it's all bullshit. Anytime a man does this or anytime a woman does something crazy mm -hmm. because they're mad that somebody doesn't want to be with them. Yeah. And why do you want to be with somebody who doesn't want to be with you? Exactly. Grow the fuck up. 
So this is a really sad story because those horrible. women were so vibrant and so beautiful and they had their whole lives out of them. Mm -hmm. They were successful. They were doing something with their lives. They had found this wonderful place that had embraced them and they were welcomed because they treated the people here like they belonged there. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? They were a part of the community even yes. if they didn't fully reside there. Yes. Then they had been embraced into the community because they came in and they treated the community like they were part of the family. And mm -hmm. it just makes me so angry that these guys did this. So young, both of them. Yeah. Oh, so infuriating. Very infuriating. So what do you have for us? Bring us something happy. Okay. Are you going to almost kill us first? I'm going to jump us into the heart of the story. I don't know what that means, but all right. <laughs> I didn't really know how to go about this one. Let's jump into the action, shall okay. we? Okay. In 2010, Marty Hill was a graphic artist for a clothing company out of Overland Park, Kansas. She was a single mother of two kids. Her oldest was her son, Stephen. He was now an adult and no longer lived in Kansas with her. He lived in Texas. Okay. However, her youngest child, Mackenzie lived with her on the weekends, on weekdays, because I guess her dad had more of a stay-at-home job, she would go live with her dad. So she was a single mother of two, only one lived with her, and that was only for the weekends. Okay. On September 8th, 2010, Marty's co-workers became confused when 8 a.m. came and went, and no one had heard from Marty, and she never showed up to her shift that day. She was normally reliable. Mm-hmm. She worked as a graphic designer for this apparel company, but it was a tiny little five by five cubicle office everybody knew each other they were all friends with each other's family and so they tried calling her and saying well did something happen is your daughter sick just let us know and they never heard back from her by 10 a.m when the company gathered for their mandatory weekly meeting their concern grew considerably because she might show up late one day and then oh my car broke down or something but she would not miss the weekly mandatory meeting that everybody had to be there for what day of the week is this? This was a Wednesday. Okay. So she had been here fine on Monday, Tuesday, so when mm -hmm. she just disappears on Wednesday, everybody's like, okay, something's not right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the only person who might have any clue, she wasn't dating anybody. She had her daughter that lived there on the weekends. They were kind of talking as coworkers in the office saying, should we try contacting her daughter? But then they decided, well, we don't want to worry her. She's in high school. She's going to freak out if we're like, something happened to your mom. We can't contact her and all that. Mm-hmm. So instead, what they decided to do, Marty's boss got in his car, drove over to her house, and started just knocking on the door, ringing the doorbell. And he realized as soon as he pulled up in front of her house that her car was still in the driveway. So he said, okay, she must be here, right? And so he's going around searching all the windows, trying to look in, and nothing seems out of order. She's just not answering the door. Okay. At that point, he called the police to come out and do a welfare check on her. Mm-hmm. An officer arrived a little bit after 11.30 that day, and he too tried knocking, no response. And then he started looking into the windows, and as he's looking through the windows in the front of the house, he realizes, oh, on her dining table that's right there in the front entryway, her purse is sitting there. It looks like she was literally about to leave for work and something happened. Maybe it's a medical emergency. They don't know. Okay. So at that point, the officer now tries the front door of the house, and it's unlocked. And he just walks right in. Nobody ever tried the front door? <laughs> it doesn't sound like her boss. Maybe he was just too panicked and just went around back and tried that, assuming the front door was going to be locked. I don't know. Okay. 
Yeah. The officer walked right into the house and he starts sweeping it to see if he can find any sign of either where she is or where she's gone, you know? Or any sign that anything bad happened. Mm Mm-hmm. Wasn't able to find any sign of a scuffle. Nothing was out of place. Her purse, nothing was knocked over or anything. And he just couldn't find her. She was nowhere in the house. In a last-ditch effort, the officer did one more round around the house, and he opened up a door that he'd forgotten to go through before and realized that was the door to the basement. Oh, no. He begins to go down the steps into the basement, and he tries to flick on the light switch, which isn't working. And there's, it seems there's no windows in this house, because it's Kansas. It's probably just a basement for tornadoes, you know, like a cellar type of thing. So he's walking down these stairs, and all he has for light is this tiny little flashlight, and he's just going through to see if... He doesn't know if there's an intruder down there with them. He doesn't right. have any clue what he's about he to walk no into. He has no idea what's going on. He gets to the second to third step from the bottom. He realizes there's a little trail of blood oh, on the no. cement floors. And so he flashes his flashlight over, and on the concrete floor, he saw a woman completely covered in blood in the fetal position and facing away from him. Oh, yeah. good God. The officer quickly rushed over to take her pulse and was unable to find one. So at this point, he thinks she's deceased. And as he's calling in on the radio saying, we I have... I thought she was deceased too. I forgot this is the survival This story. is the happy story. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, okay. I feel better now. So he's taking her pulse. He's like, oh God, I don't think she's with us any longer. And he decides to call dispatch and is like on the radio telling them, oh, we have a bad situation. I need backup here. And as he's doing that, Marty who it's later determined this is who is on the floor, turns around and scares the absolute shit out of the officer. She turned around and used all of her last strength to look over at him, and he realized the reason she hadn't responded at all was because her throat had been cut. Oh, jeez. I don't understand how people survive that. How do, how can you not just bleed out immediately? It's going to be even more amazing. Yeah, just like... Okay, okay. As I told you, he thought she was dead. She was completely caked in blood. He said... So she is a white female. He said that when he got her there and when the EMTs were taking care of her, getting her out to the hospital, until she was being prepared for surgery, everybody thought she was a black woman. Oh, wow. Because it was so caked onto her body. Oh, my goodness. And it and started drying. It started drying. And then also she had been really severely beaten into the face and everything was black and blue and they just couldn't tell. Wow. Wow. So it took a while for them to even positively identify her. <sighs> Once Marty was taken to the trauma center, doctors discovered that she also had several skull fractures, which made sense with the brutal beating her face had taken. Her daughter, Mackenzie, right after they had all of the sewn up and the initial surgeries done, she was finally allowed to go in and see her mom. And poor Mackenzie was only 15 years old. But Mackenzie gave a quote that said, the only thing I could recognize on her was her hands. Oh my god. She was swollen and bruised and bloody. Well, and, and they couldn't even get her eyes open. It was... Just swollen shut. Horrible. Did they have any <clears> idea at this point what she had been beaten with? Was it just this or was it an object? There was not an object. It sounds like when she fought back against whoever this was, which we'll get to, he had beaten her face against the concrete floor in the basement. Oh my god, no. No, 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 no. Yeah, oh. so... Unfortunately, with Marty still unconscious, I mean, she's got severe head trauma at this point. They're just not even going to try to take her out of the coma until they think she's not going to be in terrorizing pain, you know? Yeah. Is she in a coma or did they induce a coma? It sounds like they induced a coma so that they could keep track of the brain swelling. And if they needed to, they're going to go and do the craniotomy to get the pressure out. But 
They did not have to do that, sounds like. Okay. But since she was still unconscious, police kind of had to do the best with what they had available at the crime scene because they had no idea who the person was who had done this to her without her able to speak and tell them. Absolutely. But interestingly, they did find there was no forced entry, so even though the front door was unlocked, either she accidentally left it unlocked and they came through or she had let them in. So that kind of seemed, especially with such a brutal attack, that it probably was someone she was familiar with and knew her. All I can think right now is thank you to the boss. I know. If he had not taken the initiative to come over there... She would not have made it through this. She Her was not going to live much longer. Was slit three times. Oh my god! The officer got there. He said they told him once she got taken to the hospital. If she'd been down there for like another thirty minutes. Well, the officer already thought she had just. I mean, had died, she probably so. at that point her body was shutting down, ready to die, and slowing down her heart rate and stuff. And that's probably why he couldn't find a pulse. And laying on that cold concrete, I don't know if that helped or not. I don't know. Yeah, you know because maybe the cold might have made her. Though heartbeat slower or mm-hmm. something so so no forced entry there was also no sign of sexual assault so they didn't think that was why the person had done this to her there was also nothing taken from the home like i said her purse cell phone everything wallet was still on the dining room table right by the entrance so it, none of it was adding up for a motive unless it was a person furious at her with something right someone who just wanted to hurt her they went through and started talking to the people close to her including her daughter, saying, hey, I know your dad is in the area. We're going to have to talk to him because they'd been divorced seven years. So the daughter was like, I don't think my dad had anything to do with this. He has no reason to be mad at her after seven years. He's over it, you know? Right. They also decided to go ask around the neighbors and the neighbor across the street was like, I don't know anything. I don't think she's been seeing anybody or anything like that. She doesn't have men over at the house ever. But one thing I did notice on the morning of her attack around 8 o'clock, had seen a red beat-up pickup truck leaving her driveway and pulling out off of their street. Okay. And so the police were like, okay, that's something if there's somebody close to her that has a red beat-up pickup truck, something to consider. And then, of course, they looked into Mackenzie's dad. I didn't even decide to put his name because it sounds like a lot of people were really putting him through the ringer yeah. afterwards. And I was, he had He's been through that. enough if he didn't do it. Yeah. They pulled him aside, got him to talk to them, and he had a solid alibi. He was at work. He willingly gave DNA. He let them take under his fingernail swab because, like, I want to know just as bad as you do. This is my ex-wife and my daughter's mother, so. That's right. I mean, I don't want to be married to her, but I don't want her dead either. Yeah. After they were done speaking with him, they said, well, if you think of anything else, just let me know. And they gave their card to the ex-husband, and he said, all right, I will. And then finally, later that evening, he had a sudden thought. He was like, I don't, she hasn't been dating anybody. There's nobody I know of that doesn't like her for any reason. But he vaguely remembered that two weeks before, Marty had been preparing to sell her house. So she was trying to fix up some things around the house. You know the feeling. Yes, I do. Only I can't get it done. (laughs) And so she's a busy woman, you know, she's working a single mom. Marty had mentioned to him that she was going to hire some handymen to come in, do the work for her, and then only over a course of three or four days. And so he called the police that night and said, well, just look into it if I don't know the name of the guy or if she ended up actually hiring them. But that was about two weeks ago that she said that was going to happen. If they checked her phone, they should be able to find any Mm -hmm. handyman that she called. Well, it worked out even better because they didn't even have to go that far because he mentioned that to the police. And then... Immediately after they ended up speaking to Marty's mom, she told them 
yeah, same thing everybody else has been saying. She's not been seeing anybody. I don't think her ex-husband had anything to do with this. And they said, anything else? And she said, oh, yeah. She did have one person in her house in the last two weeks, and it was this handyman that I gave her the number to because he did some work for me. Last couple years, he had been coming regularly to the mom's house and fixing up stuff for her. And she had just glowing reviews for him and gave that information to her daughter and said, well, just have him come out, appraise what you need done, and see what he says. Wow. Okay. Just imagine the guilt she feels now. And the mother, this poor woman mentioned that not to say oh this guy might be suspicious she was like well he's been in the house more recently than i have so maybe call him and ask him if he's seen anybody there and so unknowingly she gave them all the information they needed to find this guy and they said yeah go ahead and give him a call his name is brian pennington and he was a 26 year old who lived across the line from kansas to missouri and he has a beat up red pickup truck Police contacted Brian Pennington. Of course his name is fucking Brian. A lot of bad Brians lately. Yeah. Police contacted Brian Pennington and headed over to his house to interview him in Leeton, Missouri, which was 90 minutes away from Marty's home. Right away, when they pulled up to his house, they noticed a red pickup truck in his driveway. Mm-hmm. And then when he opened the door, the officer noticed he had scratches along his face. I wonder how that happened, Brian And he did ask him, and Brian said that they were from his dog. Oh, yeah. Dogs always scratch you symmetrically across your face. Yeah, and even the officer was like, okay, I know what a dog paw looks like, and I know what a human hand looks like. I'm not stupid. Yeah. So the officer just played it cool and interviewed him like, oh, we're just wondering. We heard that you were at the house recently, so what do you know? And knowing that the brutal attack that Marty had suffered would leave whoever had done this covered in blood. I mean, Marty was covered in blood, and she was laying on the floor for a majority of it. Whoever did it probably has some blood-stained clothes. And they asked Brian if they could look through his laundry hamper, and he gave them full permission. And so they went ahead, went through all the dirty clothes. Not surprisingly, they found a pair of jeans just saturated in what appeared to be blood. Why would he tell them it was okay then, if he knew he had a pair of bloody jeans in there? You know how they always say they think they're the smartest person in the room? He thinks that if he says yes, then they'll be like, ah, well, he wouldn't tell us yes if he really had anything in there. I guess. Or he thinks that they're not on to him, but I don't know why, if you're not a suspect, why they would need to go through your clothes. Yeah. I don't know. He's just not that smart, it sounds like. I don't know. I think if anybody asked to go through my laundry hamper, there's probably a pretty good reason for that. I'd be like, I want a warrant, not because I killed anybody, just because I'm embarrassed about how long it's been since I washed my socks. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, he gave him full permission, and they found these pair of bloody jeans, or what seemed to be bloody jeans. And he explained to the officer, oh, I know what that looks like, but I swear it's grease. That's from me killing my dog after he scratched (laughs) me. Yeah, exactly. Fuck's sake. Good grief. So he told him it was grease, and then they said, oh, I'm sure you're right, I'm sure it probably is, but just in case, do you mind if we take these to the station, just to rule it out as blood? And Brian said, yeah, that's fine, and he signed off on a release form saying, yeah, I gave them permission to take these pants, and they took it back to the station, and that night, they drove it straight to the crime lab, and they did a test, and they're like, yeah, this is off blood. What a fucking moron. Well, I I don't understand. I'm literally just drawing a complete blank here because nothing about this interaction makes any sense at all. It just seems like no self-preservation at all. Seriously. Or maybe he just doesn't realize what he did was a bad thing. Or he just didn't know that he had the right to say no. Maybe. 
maybe he thought, oh, I have to let them do this. Well, and I think part of the story that he thought he was solid and it was going to get away with this was because his wife told the police when they came to the house, oh yeah, I was with him all night and all day that morning. He hasn't been back to that house in two weeks and I would know. I mean, it's 90 minutes away. He would be gone for three hours and he hasn't been gone from the house that amount of time in the past two weeks. And so she kind of verified his alibi, but we'll come back to that. As the police now prepared to get their warrant and make an arrest, they finally got a call just a few days after her attack. Sounds like either a day or two after they got the blood results back from the pants. They were told Marty has officially woken up and she's regained consciousness. Not only that, she knows exactly who this was and she'd like to make a statement. It's amazing that she didn't have memory loss just from the physical trauma of what happened to her brain. Well, she did, but she remembered what led up to it. Okay. So for the most part, she's like, I remember who was in my house, and that's all that matters. Absolutely. The police went to the hospital to speak with Marty, and she said that she remembered that morning about 7.30 a.m. She was literally about to walk out to her car to go to work. Hence the purse right by the door. Mm Mm-hmm. And as she started to grab the rest of her stuff to go... She heard something on her front porch, and she looks out the front window, and she spots her handyman Brian standing on her porch. Even though she's confused about why the hell he's here, she opened up the door and said, What's up, Brian? And he explained that while he had worked on her home two weeks ago, he had noticed something that would need fixed eventually in the basement, and he just wanted to point that out to her because he was in town for another job that he was doing. And he was like, Well, since I'm here, I just wanted to show you this, and you can think about if you want me to work on that. And she's like, I guess, but I'm not going to make you come back an hour and a half this way to do it again on a different day. So she's like, yeah, real quick, let's just go to the basement and you can show me real fast. Or maybe just tell me what it is and then we can talk about it later. She agreed to hear him out and began leading him back to the basement stairs and she's making small talk along the way and all the way down into this basement. So she's like on the last two or three stairs. And she said, you know that feeling when you're talking to someone and they're silent for just long enough that you're like, okay, they're not listening because they're either distracted or... Planning a murder. Or do... Yeah, they're clearly not listening to me because they're not even going, hmm, what? Or anything. Yeah, exactly. That's the feeling I, actually, she got. Actually, I, I should have just sat silently for a second. like And been like, <laughs> would you say something? Yeah. <laughs> Well, she got that feeling as she's almost into the basement now. And so she turns around, and as she turns around to look at him, he grabbed her as hard as he could around her throat and starts just choking her out. She's still confused. Why is he doing that? Did something happen? Did he think I was falling? Like, she has no idea if he's even trying to kill her if something else happened at this point. Oh, my God. I can't imagine what's going through her mind. He continued to squeeze her and squeeze her and squeeze her until she eventually lost consciousness. And then a little bit later, she came to again. Now she's all the way down in the basement and she's laying on the floor. And she's kind of woke up and was like still delirious. And she realized her entire body just hurt and she didn't know what had happened if she fell down the stairs maybe. But she starts to pick herself back up after all these injuries, keep in mind. She's picking herself back up off the floor and then realizes he's still in the basement with her. And he starts fighting her again, probably having thought she was down for the count for good. He then proceeded to beat her head again and then choked her out again, and she passed out again on the floor. Had he already cut her throat? I think so, because she said she was having trouble speaking, couldn't figure out why. (sighs) So on the bright side, it seems like either from the trauma 
that her brain suffered or maybe just her body didn't want her to remember. Most of that she doesn't remember is the brutality of... The the emotional shock just sort of shut those memories down. Yeah, whichever one Mm. it is, she doesn't remember that at all. Oh my god. I just want to know why this mother comes in here. He obviously drove here only to kill her. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. So he just wanted to kill somebody and thought this would be a convenient place. Probably saw an easy target. He was there for three or four days. A couple weeks prior, I realized she's a single mother and her child is not here on weekdays. So if I do it on Wednesday, that gives me two, three days before her daughter has to come home. And you know, he probably knew that would be who found her. And that's fucked up beyond imagine. That's a good point too, yeah. Finally, on September 13th, Police went to Brian's house and he wasn't home to arrest him. And they ended up actually, they got back on the freeway to go back to their base and they passed him on the freeway and pulled him over and arrested him there. Marty remained in the hospital for nearly a month, allowing the swelling of her head and face to go down so they could determine the extent of the damage and what would be lasting versus temporary. They also revealed to her after she started getting up and walking and moving again that This is how close she was to not making it that day. She had the three cuts against her throat, right? Yeah. And not only did it miss her carotid artery, it literally, there were scratch marks on the carotid. It just didn't puncture through. Oh my gosh. So the blade touched it. The blade touched it for some reason, whether it just wasn't, it was too dull or something at that point, it didn't go through enough to make her bleed out. But they said if that had happened, she certainly would have been dead four hours later when the co-workers Absolutely. showed up banging at her door. So, wow. And she did struggle greatly with her hearing, vision, and balance after, but I think that's to be expected with a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. But with the help of her two kids, she was able to relearn the things that she initially struggled with. The daughter turned 16 while her mom was in the hospital relearning all these things. I ended up getting her, like, a little vest, and she would just force her mom, like, nope, you're not laying down all day today. You're getting up with me, buddy. And, like, walking her down the hallway, <laughs> making her do stuff. That's adorable. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just sweet. So Marty does give a lot of her daughter, Mackenzie, props for helping her through most of it. That's amazing. Good for her. After only a month or two, she finally came home, and she didn't go back to her house because, one, trauma, and then, two, she didn't want to put all the pressure on her daughter to take care of her day in and day out. So she moved in temporarily with her own mother. She was selling her house anyway. Yeah, she's like, fuck this. (laughs) I'm done. Yeah, I'm out of here. So they have Brian in custody. They then pulled up his record and found that he had 26 prior convictions, as they always fucking do. Holy crap. He had to be a handyman. You and know, he, because you, you don't have to have references, you know, job references, except for, like, I did this work for that client. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have to have a license to do it. And I didn't think about that until just now, actually, that you said that. But most of his prior convictions were with burglary, which if you get to go into strangers' houses a lot and fix things while they're not home or while they're in another room doing something, I guess that's convenient for a known burglar. Or you can at least find things you know you want to come back and steal later. Or Mm -hmm. you can leave ways that'll make it easier for you to break in later. That's true. The other convictions he had on file were from domestic violence against his wife, Previous partners, people that he had met once and gone home with them, stuff like that. That's why his wife lied about the alibi. Yeah. 
just to be fair with his wife, he was incredibly abusive. She did have different things against him, and they had two children living at home together, and I think she was staying with him and trying to protect her and the kids mostly. So I don't want to blame her at all for lying initially, because she ended up coming through, and in his trial, she was the main witness, saying, that Mm. motherfucker was not home. I know for a fact he wasn't. Arrest him. Keep him. We don't want him. Well, yeah, because if he's in prison, he's not beating you and your children. She's free. Now she has however many years to move change her name, whatever she needs to do. Mm-hmm. So And probably divorce him in absentia if he's in prison. Mm-hmm. I would think there'd have to be some allowance for that. Oh, especially if she already had previous things out against him, charges. She also came through and helped out quite a bit getting him busted because on the day that Marty had been attacked, his wife had texted him at 7.59 a.m. So he was already in her home attacking her at this point. And his wife texted him, which he hadn't used his phone the entire morning, but because she texted him, his phone pinged to the cell tower right next to Marty's house. Oh, okay. So his wife accidentally, unknowingly, put him at the scene of the crime. Good job, wife. Yeah, she helped out multiple ways. Yeah. I can understand why she would have been fearful, Mm -hmm. thinking if there's nothing that puts him there, if they don't have any evidence to say that he did this yet. I don't Mm -hmm. want to stick my neck out because I'm going to get beat up. And it's not like they interviewed them separately. She's still in the home with this guy and they don't have a warrant for arrest yet. Exactly. At the end of the day, they're leaving, going back to their And I'm here with this guy who's going to be really mad at me. And my two children. Yeah, so of course you would lie. I I probably would too. No, I get that now. Yeah. But then you later go back and say, look, I wasn't telling you the truth about that. Mm -hmm. As soon as they arrested him, she was like, oh, thank God, here's... Here's the real facts. Mm -hmm. Come the day that Brian was brought to court for his preliminary hearing, he had absolutely no one on his side of the courtroom. Even his mother and wife sat on her side. Good. Brian Pennington decided to plead guilty to first-degree attempted murder with a plea deal, and he will be serving 28 years in prison for Marty's attack. However, he refused to give any kind of statement. He wouldn't apologize. He wouldn't give her any reasoning as to why he chose her, if it was just an easy target because he knew she'd be alone. I think we we already figured it out. Yeah. He was just a worm. He was just a predator, and he was looking for someone that he could get alone that wouldn't be discovered quickly. Joke's on you, buddy. And he might have been there just because he did not sexually assault her. That also doesn't mean he wasn't there for that. And then she put up a hell of a fight and he said, that's not worth it anymore. I'm just getting the fuck out of here. Yeah. And totally like, possible too. And again, like Kelly Heron said, just make it clear that you are going to be more trouble than you're worth to them. And yep. maybe that's exactly what happened there. Since then, this was in 2010, so it's been some time since that. But she's mostly healed almost completely 100%. She has still memory lapse from that, but again, that might just be the trauma response. Yeah. She has since created a website, which is simply called martyhill.com, and that is spelled M-A-R-T-I-H-I-L-L.com with her story on it, and she has a huge just recommendation page of all the different emotional things that she went through after her attack and then surviving it and everything Mm -hmm. and all the different aspects and oh if you're struggling with this part of PTSD here are a list of recommendations of books that helped me wow that's a great resource it's just cool if you've ever specifically she has a list for you for that and like things like that so if you go to her website she has all of that for people wow good for her 
and she is currently writing a memoir titled Millimeter from Murder, because of how close it was to cutting her carotid, Yeah. The Anatomy of a Survivor, and I looked on her website just this morning, and it still doesn't appear to be out yet, but if you go there, you can sign up on the pre-sale for it, and they'll alert you on as soon as it comes out, so mm-hmm. I'll be looking forward to that. Wow, Marty, that's amazing. That's amazing, and her daughter grabbing her and dragging her off the bed to get some exercise, I, I think that's really... In her little vest. Wow, what a great survivor. I'm mm-hmm. so amazed that and she made it through that. And good for her mom coming through with that vital information that... How easy would that be to forget? I mean, they may have eventually found him, but mm-hmm. he would have already done his laundry by then. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have still had bloody jeans in the laundry basket. So, and then the only evidence they would have is neighbor maybe saw his truck, maybe, but that's not allowed to take them to court unless, I guess, Marty did end up waking up and identifying him herself, but they got a head start before she was ever even awake, so that's right. That's awesome. But if she had not made it, mm-hmm. they needed that other information that they had in yeah. order to pin it on him, so... Wow. That was a good story, though. Thank you for that. Such a badass to get through that and survive that. To get through that. And her daughter got up and spoke to him at his trial, too. I was proud of her. Only 16 years old. What'd she tell him? She got up there and looked him dead in the eye and was just like, I don't know why he did this, but you're the loser. You're behind bars. You're never going to talk to this woman again. Bye. That leaves me feeling like I want to go out and lift some weight and... I know. What excuse do we have to not exercise today? I do now? exercise. I'm doing my yoga every morning. I know. Now. It just every made me feel morning. like a lump of shit. I was like, God, I am a lazy mother. <laughs> so, in case anybody else needed some inspiration today, go for a walk. Yes. So, guys, thank you for being here, and we will see you next week for episode 57. Yay! Bye. Bye. Sweet potato breath. We just oh, recorded that. As I'm like, disgusting. <laughs> it's kind of sad how comfortable we are. Do you remember how nervous we were when we first started? And now it's just like, let's talk about poop. <laughs> I guess that's one year of podcasting for you. <laughs> Hello. She literally just <laughs> appeared. She just came and plopped down between my feet on the ground. and I... Well, she got used to sitting under the toilet. Now she's like, I don't feel comfortable when there's not a butt above me. <laughs> In order to sell it and get things ready, she had... Fuck. <laughs> Sorry, there's something floating in my water cup, and I don't know what it is, and I don't like it. It kind of looks like a gnat, but I also... Or a ball of cat hair. I think it's cat hair now that I look at it. <laughs> I'll just dump it in the cat bowl. Okay. It's her anyway. <clears throat> Women tend to accept a broader range of traits in men than they are willing to accept in us as, oh, a, gen- yeah, our as a general rule. Oh, yeah, our standards are low. I mean, I've dated some good guys, but like, let's be honest, how many times... Do women go into relationships and you're like, the conversation was okay. And for the next three months of dating that person, you have to convince yourself. He's kind of <laughs> cute. If you look at him with your left eye closed, like, tilt your head. They still think they should be with supermodels. Could put on the charm for the first three months and then change drastically. Yeah, and then they suddenly turn into this slob who won't wash their own dishes or clean the toilet. Yuck. I hate that. Peed all over the floor in the bathroom. Yes, it's so weird. We don't sound bitter or anything. 
four out of ten guys will get with a ten out of ten girl, and then after a couple months, we'll think they're a ten out of ten because they're with a ten out of ten, and start acting like you're the one that's not good enough. And then they get out of that, and they're like, "Why won't anybody date me?" No shame. And I was not listening to like the last thirty seconds of what you said. 